Well, it's our privilege um, to introduce to you, maybe for the first time, some of you, um, Dr. Renee Brathwaite. He is uh, currently um, on staff at Malone College, and also he's the dean of the Ohio School of Ministries. But he's going to be talking about, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about the transition that you're making. I noticed you mentioned that downstairs, so I don't think I, the cat's out of the bag. So, um, But um, you are blessed because it's going to be harder to see him in a little bit um, because Minnesota is a long, it's a fur piece away. But would you put your hands together and welcome our speaker this, this evening. The scripture says, shouting to God with a voice of triumph. There's something that happens that when we release ourselves in this way, in a godly kind of a way, that we encounter God right there in our praise, God inhabiting our genuine praises. Again, it's a pleasure to be here sharing with you, and I, I want to get into the message quickly. I'm like chomping at the bit. So let me do that, and all the niceties you may for, you have to forgive me for. I may get around to them at the end, but if I don't, that's okay. Now, if you have noticed an accent when I get a little happy, that's because I'm from Wisconsin. No, I'm I'm from the South, the way South, (laughs) the way, way South. Uh, I was born in Barbados, um, the last of 10 kids, and um, really enjoyed living there. Now I'm moving to Minneapolis. Wow. I want to preach to you a message. Entitled, Soul on Fire. Soul on Fire. Our text is to be taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. We're going to read from verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. High and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each had six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. What a vision. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongues from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, this should be the cry of every Christian. Here am I. 
send me. Lord, set our hearts on fire today. As we have read your word and as we attempt to share the truths that emanate from it, may you, Lord, set us ablaze for your glory. Let tonight not just be a rally, but let it be a threshold moment. Let it be a paradigm-shifting kind of a moment where we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that we have been with you and we are never going to be the same again. Let us not, Lord, be business as usual. But let this be truly a divine encounter with your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Now, there are many ways to engage this very, very colorful passage of Scripture. It's colorful. It is awe-inspiring. But I want to offer you just one way. A three-dimensional perspective consisting of three different kinds of looks. The first is an upward look. The second, an inward look. The third, an outward look. These three motifs I want to guide us tonight as we explore what it means to have a soul on fire. And in the process, my prayer is, that you too will be set ablaze. Are you ready? Amen. Let's go for it. The upward look. Isaiah 6, 1 to 4. Begins with these very interesting words. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Literally, Bushna Mot, or in the death year. According to our reckoning, this was about 740 B.C. Now, many scholars, and I've read them, a lot of them, probably too many of them, many have tried to ascertain the connection between this beginning verse and the rest of the text. Is it a chronological marker, a marking of time, or is it a causal marker? That is, that in the year, something that happened in the death of Uzziah caused something to happen in the life of Isaiah. Yes. <laughs> after studied, uh, my studied conclusion after years of looking at this text and hearing the arguments back and forth, yes, it is both. It serves both. Uzziah, who'd, who had been a very impressive king, now lay dead. Now, he's also known as Azariah, by the way. And he had reigned over the southern kingdom for about 52 years. The first 24 of these years, he was co-regent with his father Amaziah, and the last 11 years of which he was a co-regent with his son Jotham. Second Chronicles 26 tells us about Uzziah, how he conquered the Philistines and the Arabians, how he received tribute from the Ammonites, how he fortified his country, reorganized and re-equipped the army, how he developed farming and animal husbandry, how he restored the southern kingdom, almost to its former glory. Impressive resume. But he was hampered in his prime 
because the Lord struck him with leprosy. 2 Kings 15.4 provides a general framework of what to place, while 2 Chronicles 26.16-21 provides the details. So despite this brilliant early career in which he did all these things that were good and right in the sight of the Lord, he did not rid the country of its false worship. And furthermore, perhaps influenced by the very false worshipers he had failed to deal with, he tries to burn incense in the temple, something that was forbidden for him to do. Look at what it says in Second Chronicles. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Azariah the priest with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord followed him in. They confronted King Uzziah and said, it is not right for you to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary for you have been unfaithful. And you will not be honored by the Lord God. Of course, he didn't listen. And he tried to burn the incense and he was struck with leprosy. The scripture says that leprosy broke out on his forehead. And because of this, he was banned from the temple. A brilliant man. Militarily, organizationally, culturally brilliant. And he faces a very, very difficult time because of his pride. And then he finally dies. And this is the occasion of our text. It is easy to become discouraged when great people we admire fall and when they die. Have you ever experienced that? See, it can remind us of our own fragility. And it can also make us fearful or, or balk in the face of difficulty. I wouldn't mention names, but we've had some spectacular failings in our circles, some spectacular ones. But this is why Isaiah absolutely needs this upward vision. He needs, an, see his eyes are focused, have been focused on Uzziah, this great man. But if Isaiah is to continue the ministry that the Lord had given to him. He needs to know some important things. Number one, he needs to learn that the Lord and not Uzziah is king. The Lord, that word Lord, Adonai. See, all word, our English word doesn't really do justice. All our word comes from a, a loan word from Old English, meaning, which was called loaf ward, literally meaning a bread keeper. And it was used to speak of nobles who kept the bread. They kept control of the masses. But it was not necessarily a king. Adonai is much more powerful than this. In fact, when Jews see the tetragrammaton, the YHWH, 
They don't say it because it is too holy and too ineffable. Instead, they say, Adonai. This word means master. Sovereign master. And the Lord is king in every sense. Look at the text again. He is the one with the highest seat. He is high and lifted up. His robe is filling the entire temple. And even the magnificent seraphim, those shining or burning ones who hover around him, what are they doing? They're covering their faces. Even though they are bright and shining, yet in the face of God's presence, in the face of God's glory, they cover themselves. The Lord is king. We are facing some interesting political times. I want to remind you, friends, the Lord is king. Hallelujah. The Lord is king. Hallelujah. But the Lord is not just king. The Lord is holy. Look at verse 3. And they were calling to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy. Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. Holy, you're set apart, you're above, you're beyond, you're transcendent. Three times they say this. It's not that they're stuttering. In the Hebrew, when you pile up adjectives like this, we're speaking of intensity. Now we have something similar in Barbados. Now if something is good, we say it's good. If something is very good, we say it's good, good. And if something is like off the chain, it's like, that's good, good, good. (laughs) Of course, I'm giving you the Americanized version. (laughs) (laughs) It is a superlative. It means this is the highest that we can say. God is holy, holy, holy. Set apart, transcendent, nothing stains his glory. He is holy, but he's also almighty. The Lord is almighty. Yahweh, Sabbath, the Lord almighty. This speaks of his rulership. His sovereignty, his power to conquer, his ability to subdue all his enemies. This is the God that we serve. Feel that power, experience it, think of it. But this Lord is not just mighty. He doesn't just exude goodness and greatness and holiness. He also fills the heaven and the earth. Look at the text again. He is high and exalted. And the train of his robe fills the temple and the whole earth. 
The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth. You see, there's a very important nuance here I want you to get. That there is no space for anything else. In this context, there is no room for competition. There is no one that can compete or vie for God's uh, throne or God's authority. There's no aspect of creation that God's presence and power cannot reach. You see, in the ancient world, you have all these competing deities who would constantly be fighting one another. But hallelujah, we understand from the scripture that there is only one true God. Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohenu Adonai Akai. Hear Israel, the Lord of God. The Lord is one. There is no competition. The whole earth and heaven are filled with his glory. I'm getting excited, can you tell? Glory. Turn to your neighbor, give him a high five and say, heavy. (laughs) I'm taking you back to the 70s, man. Heavy, that's heavy. That's literally what kabod means. It means heaviness. Figuratively, it speaks of the majesty, honor, awe-inspiring splendor. God is an awesome God. Hallelujah. He is awesome. No competitor. No one like him. He speaks and things happen. Things change. No one can stand against the might and power of our God. The problem is, though, we we don't understand what awe is. You know that song, Everything is Awesome? The funny thing is that if everything is awesome... Nothing's often awesome, or every day is awesome, whatever it is they're saying. We've lost a sense of everything. Oh, how, how was your day? Awesome, man. You don't understand the word. You don't understand the word. When we use the word awesome, it means that when we look and behold the splendor and majesty of our God, words fail us. We are struck as one dumb Because his majesty is so great. It is incalculable. This is the awesome God that we serve. Hallelujah. This is why Isaiah needs to have a vision of God. His eyes were in the wrong place. God wants to show him, look, Uzziah is not what you think he was. Uzziah is just a man and he is going to die. But look at me. Your strength, your power, your supply is found in me and me alone. And so we, like Isaiah, we need this reminder. We need this upward vision that the God we serve is neither thwarted nor limited by human frailty or weakness. Let me tell you the truth. You know what the truth is? Your God is too small. I tell my students that and like, what? You see, you want a God that you can fold up and put in your pocket, right? Bring him out when, you know, things are going rough and he kind of makes you feel better about yourself and you put him back in. The God we serve is so far beyond anything that we can imagine. 
the glory of God. He is the one who set the stars in space. He spoke the worlds into existence. He said, light be, and it was. It had no choice. He breathed into the first people, and there became the first man, and he became a living soul. He then took the rib out of the man, and he formed from the dust of the earth this woman. He is awesome. Your God is too small. We, we, we get thwarted because, oh, I owe $1,000. The world has come to an end. What are we going to do? God doesn't love us. <laughs> there is nothing too hard. There is nothing. You got cancer? So? You got bills? So? You got relationship problems? So? Our God is not limited. He isn't. The scripture describes him as mighty to save. Come on, you can finish it. He's mighty to save and he's strong. He is strong to deliver. We need a reminder. Our God is not subject to earthly or heavenly circumstance or power. And this is the part I like. We serve God not by our own authority. Did you know that? We kind of make it think that church functions because we, we show up. That God does things because we happen to be there. Oh, okay. But I think you have the cart before the horse, friend. We serve God by the authority of God and of heaven itself. In one of his last speeches, known as the Great Commission, or Lord Jesus, here's the ridiculous thing about this story. It's very ridiculous when you think of it. A ragtag band of people who don't really always agree with each other anyway. You got a couple of fishermen, then you got a tax collector. Ooh. <laughs> then you've got a nut, a religious nut, Simon Zelotes, or Simon the Zealot. Then you got two brothers who are hotheads. That's why you call them sons of thunder, the Bornerges. And listen to what he says to them. All hail, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Okay, if you don't see the funny, the irony and, and the, 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 just the joke of this whole thing. They don't have any money. They don't have a political system. They don't have a philosophy. They don't even have a, a real culture yet. He looks at these fellas he's, who he's crept up in the last three and a half years and says to them, go into the world and change it. That's nuts. <laughs> but it's only nuts if all you see are those men in front of you. What did Jesus say? The condition that makes this ridiculous situation possible is the first part of the phrase. We focus on the latter parts, but it's the first part. All hail, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. Therefore, because of this power, because of this authority, you can go. God's work 
It's not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon God himself. Hallelujah. You know what he promises to you? That he will be with you always to the ends of the earth. My friends, I want you tonight to lift your eyes up and see. Lift your eyes up and see that there are more that are for us than there are those that are against us. Lift your eyes up and see this holy, powerful, matchless God. God the King, God the Holy One, God the Almighty who fills heaven and earth. This God is with us. The Lord of hosts is his name. This should set your heart on fire. That's the upward look. Now, the others may not be as long, so you can bear with me a little longer. Right? I haven't said closing. Normally, I have about three or four closings, okay? So don't get too excited when you hear me say in closing. Fair warning. The second is this inward look. Isaiah 6, 5 to 7. Isaiah says, woe to me. I, am, I cry, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. He looks inward. It is not possible to look at God in this way, to have this incredible experience of God's glory and holiness and not be aware of your own insufficiency, your own lack, and your own weakness. I mean, even the seraphim had to cover their faces But this is the same Isaiah who had been prophesying all along, right? Now, all he can do, like a baby, is to cry out, Whoa, it's me! You see, the light of God's holiness burns through our self-righteous facades, our facades. We come to church with a lot of facades. And they mess us up. And we pretend like everything is okay. But pretense stops us from experiencing the reality of what God wants for us. The light of God's presence burns through us. See, here's the point. It's a very serious note. There is no shame in admitting our brokenness. In fact, you know what? I prefer to be in a church with people who recognize their lack than to be in a church of stuck-up, pretentious people. We see, when it's out in the open, we can deal with it. But what we do is we put a plaster over a bullet wound and we come into church and we, over and over again, we are collapsing. The wound is becoming putrid and infected. You see, the transparency I'm talking about is a necessary condition for us to experience divine power. Note how Isaiah's honest, transparent cry elicits a delayed response. 
No, an immediate response. Immediately, one of those burning ones flew to him with a coal in his hand and that he'd had with the tongues of fire from the altar, and he touched his mouth. Oh, I wish we had a group of people here tonight who would cry out to God. From, all, from, from the depths, from the depths, the sister said, deep, crying to deep. I pray that we have a bunch of people who will cry out before God. Oh, God, we are undone. Oh, holy, mighty God, God of love and power and majesty, we are undone. We need you. We need you, Lord. That's the kind of cry God responds to Self-examination, the inward look. Let's move quickly, because I want to spend a lot of time in prayer tonight. We do have a time. This outward look is an interesting one. It begins as early as six five. Isaiah here confesses that he's living among a people of unclean lips. It's interesting. He's a man of unclean lips who lives among people with unclean lips. Why does he obsess about lips? There's a whole lot of other things people do. Why? The context tells us some things, though. I believe that he realizes that his, his and his people's defiled lips are not adequate to worship this transcendent God. He sees God high and lifted up. And all of a sudden he tries to say something, but it's not good enough. It can't be good enough. It's not adequate. He also realizes, number two, that he is woefully inadequate to speak for God. He can't speak for his God. He had been prophesying all along, but now he realizes, oh my goodness, my words are not enough. But you know what? Jesus teaches us this profound truth. He says, no good tree bears bad fruit. This is Luke 6, 43 to 45. Nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from, a thorn, from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good that's stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings out evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. And here's the key Words here for this, for our purposes tonight. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The lips are a barometer of the soul. And I think this is why Isaiah is fixating. Do you know how you know a marriage is in trouble? Now I've done my share of counseling. The one thing I look for, and I do it innocently because they don't even think that I'm evaluating. I ask, tell me your story. Tell me about your wedding. If I hear while the rain was falling, the bride was late, and the cake was horrible, if all I hear from the story is negativity, you know what I know? There's trouble. The mouth has a way 
of expressing those things that are deep. The lips are barometer for soul. Now, watch your lips. Think about your talk. Do you find yourself full of negative talk? It can't be done. You know my most dangerous time? It's when I'm hungry. The whole world is completely out of perspective. And a true confession, in the spirit of confession and openness, I had to apologize to my son and my daughter because I was too rough with them. You know what I learned? It wasn't them, it was me. I'm nervous about moving. I'm nervous about this big change and everything, even though it's small, looks to come out in. The lips are barometer of the soul. But we can identify with Isaiah's horror about his community, can't you? I mean, who would have ever imagined that we would be looking at the normalization and legalization of aberrant or, 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 or false or, or even unscriptural sexual behavior? It's becoming normal. Have you seen broadcast TV recently? Like, what is this? And the sad part is that some so called Christians are promoting these lifestyles as though it is the Christian thing to do. And that if you say something, that somehow you are not Christian. What? What? What kind of a world is this? We look around and God's name is blasphemed in every venue. We live in a corrupt world. But I want to encourage you, friends, this outward look is not just about recognizing sin and those around us, but it's also about seeing and responding to the need. See, we have too many Christians that all they do is curse the darkness. You're in there cursing the darkness, cursing the darkness. It's so bad, it's so bad. Well, you know, there's this this thing called a light switch. Boop! Darkness gone. Who knew? It's magic. Don't curse the darkness. Be the light. Let God set your heart on fire and become the light. Isaiah says, he heard the Lord saying to him, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, pick me, pick me, pick me. See, Isaiah understands something really important, that a collision is about to happen between this holy, mighty king of Israel and an unruly and and a faithless people. And he knows instinctively that it's going to end badly for Israel. Israel is playing games. But such a God as the one that Isaiah has seen is not to be trifled with. So without hesitation, he sees this about to happen. He responds, send me. Send me. Paul expresses a similar point. He says, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. We try to persuade others. I'm coming to a close. (laughs) 
One last important note. Just as lips were standing for Isaiah's life, so too are his lips standing for his whole life when the angel places the coals of fire on him. That fire represented a life that was set ablaze with the mission of God. His soul was set on fire. And this Isaiah, he goes on to advise kings and to become a key prophet in the land whose prophecies of the coming Messiah would become central to redemptive history. I think no other prophet is as prolific about the Messiah as Isaiah. You see, because God set him on fire. God sent, set him on fire. My friends, there's a call being sounded right now. Who will go for us? Young men and women, seniors, and all in between, who will represent Jesus Christ in this world gone mad? You don't think it's gone mad? Well, maybe you're not just you're not watching the news. Who will lift up high the blood-stained yet the triumphant banner of the cross? Will you, in your job, in your family, in your school, in your circle of friends, will you become an agent of the cross, an agent of the kingdom? Set ablaze with the fire of God? What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? The world needs you. I'll say it again. The world needs you. You can't be waiting for your pastors or your leaders to do it for you. But you must have three things to ignite this flame. A clear vision of God. A clear vision of yourself and a clear vision of the needs. When we have these things, friends, and we put ourselves in the right place, then this fire, this same fire that we celebrate every Pentecost Sunday that fell in the church approximately 1,981 years ago, that same fire will fall upon you. This is the cleansing, empowering fire of the Holy Spirit. Ferdinand Folk, he's a French military strategist of World War I, and considered perhaps one of the most brilliant strategists of his time. He said, the most powerful weapon on earth is the human soul on fire. I'm going to want up him, I think, better the most powerful weapon on earth is the human soul on fire with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Holy Spirit. This is why Satan fights us, stops us, because he understands the power of the Holy Spirit when sometimes we do not. You see, Isaiah's experience was just a foretaste of what God wants to do with each and every believer. Joel 2.28 says, In the last days, I will pour in my spirit, God says, on all flesh. Sons and daughters will prophesy. So men and women. Old men 
will see visions. Young men will see dreams. Age. Even a service and handmaids class. These distinctions are broken down when the spirit comes. I call this the democratization of the spirit. In the Old Testament, when you saw the spirit move, you could almost assume that it was older male leader. Now God says, I'm doing something new in the earth in these last days. I will pour my spirit upon all flesh. And Jesus makes it even more specific. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the parts of the earth. And then this prophecy is fulfilled as they were sitting in an upper room. Tongues of fire appeared over them and there was a sound of a rushing mighty wind and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. And they spoke in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And Peter says, this call is for everybody. This gift is for all. Repent, he says. Be baptized. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Now, do you really want to serve the Lord? That's the first question. Not do you want to speak in tongues. Hello? Do you really want to serve the Lord? Do you want to see God's kingdom manifested in your life? Do you want to represent him in your world? Now, I know that give spirit-filled people a hard time. But despite appearances, when people encounter genuine spirit-filled people, they don't know what to do with us. They don't know what to do with us. You see, they're accustomed to the fakes and the frauds, and they, can, and they, and they put you in that, that box. That's right. But we who know the power of God, we who have tasted the real, we know the difference. The world is looking for spirit-empowered believers to be agents of deliverance. You know how many drugs are in this part of our country? You know how many people die of heroin a week in Ohio alone? It's a tragedy. You know how many people are in sexual bondage? Right on, I guess it's called Tusk, Tuscarawas in um, Canton, there's a hotel that is known as the sex trafficking capital of this part of the world. Not to mention the people who are addicted to porn and addicted to all kinds of stuff. Lives are messed up. Amen. The world is looking for agents who are spirit-empowered who could be conduits of God's power. What are you waiting for? You think it's all about coming to church, getting your church jollies on, and then going home? You think God anoints that? Maybe that sounds too harsh. 
people want to get baptized in the Holy Spirit to warm up you. All right. But so what do you want to do? Just warm up you? You don't need a baptism of the Holy Spirit to warm up you. That's so easy a caveman could do it. <laughs> God is looking for spirit-empowered ambassadors. There are places where your pastors can't go. There are spheres of influence that you have that no one else has. And you need to be as spirit-filled as your pastor because you know what? You're facing the same demons. You're facing the same challenges. God is more ready to set your soul on fire than you are ready. Let's stand. Worship team, come and help me. Now, I want you to listen as I give a couple of instructions. Right? There might be some of you here who have... You're not a Christian. and I like to give an altar call for people who are not saved. Because we don't know who comes to these things. But you're not a Christian. And you say, well, I don't fully understand everything you're talking about. But I want that kind of connection with God that you exemplify. If that's you, why don't you just raise your hand? I see that hand in the back. I see that hand in the back. Is there anyone else who you want to commit your life to Christ? Let's do this important business transaction then with the Lord. I'm going to ask the person who raised your hand. You're not, we're not going to ask you to come forward, but I'm going to ask you to pray right where you are. And pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus. Come into my heart and cleanse me from my sin. I acknowledge that you are Lord and I commit my life to your hands. Save me, Lord. Become my master. And I'll give you all the praise and all the glory. In Christ's name I pray. If you prayed that prayer, make sure you tell somebody about it. Now this next call, I'm going to ask if you're a believer and you, this call resonates with you. You want your soul to be set on fire. If that's you, let's fill these altars. Let's fill these altars. It doesn't matter if you were baptized in the Holy Spirit years ago or last week, but you recognize your need. You want more of God. You want more. You want your life to be set on fire. You want your life to matter, to count for the kingdom.
as I shared with the group this afternoon, this is not a high-pressure sales pitch here. No, friends, this is not magic, and this is not, you know, no, this is not, no, there's no tricks. This is about us as a body of believers doing business with our king. So as you stand or you, or you kneel, just lift our voices to the Lord. And the musicians, can you just start singing and praying softly as we all together start to worship together. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.